When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So what's President Trump up to? Does he want to take down the Republican Party and remake it in his own image? I don't believe anyone doubts the American people's values or the commitment of the American government or the government's agencies to advancing those values and defending those values. And, and the president's values? The president speaks for himself, Chris. We are back with the Trumpcast Book Club. I'm delighted to be joined today by Katie Royfe and Philip Gravich, who you'll remember from earlier in the year. We took a uh, literary summer hiatus. We were planning to discuss today's book, Strangers in Their Own Land, by Arlie Russell Hochschild, a couple months ago, and we ran into some scheduling troubles, but we've all read it, and we're uh, loaded and ready to discuss it. But um, I don't know. Before we get into that, how how was your summer, guys? K- Katie, how was your summer? Uh, excellent. I mostly was slothful and vacationing. But I bet you did some good reading. What was the best book you read? I your did. favorite book? Um, it's hard to say because I read a lot of great books. Um, I'm, re- I'm reading this book by David Plant, and it's it's called Difficult Women. And it's about um, Jermaine Greer and uh, Gene Reese, and it's his encounters with these incredibly brilliant women, like t- after their decline, like uh, in their difficult, even most difficult years. And it's just these beautiful vignettes of these kind of like road trips he took with Jermaine Greer in Tulsa. What a great, t- what a great title. But he didn't have Kate Millett, who who died recently. No, no. Yeah. She wasn't that difficult. No. Um, well, same idea. <laughs> difficult in a different way. And F- Philip, welcome back. How about, did you read any good books to recommend not about Trump? Yeah, I was, um, I actually think maybe the best book I read this summer was James Rebank's The Shepherd's Life. And he's a uh, uh, shepherd from uh, Northern England, from uh, Cumbria and the Lake District, who's like many multi, it's a story of being like the heir to a multi-generation ancient tradition of grazing these sheep. And in some ways, it's a book that's very much about the work. It's really about a particular kind of working and farm life, but it's also very much about issues that are in play in our country too now, but not explicitly politically, just in the sense of here's this guy from this small town and school seems worthless and it's a sorting system and it's a class system, but he actually finds his way to Oxford at one point and he's just incredibly bright and versatile, but he really wants to work back on this farm. And it's it's a it's beautifully written. It's quite varied. It's very good on fathers and sons. It's very good on sheep, which I have no prior <laughs> uh, deep commitment to as a subject. And uh, it's excellent. Uh, I, I love that. An actual literary shepherd. He's all this, but he can answer the poets who have been writing about him for thousands of years. Well, this is what's <laughs> fascinating is he really says the poets have been writing about us for thousands of years, but we're never really our real lives are never at all in these poems. And the whole fetishization of the uh, Lake District and, and, and of the of kind of the romance of the bucolic uh, rural life and then of country homes being bought, I mean, the farms being bought up by uh, basically gentrification of a sort and tourism. He's like, we're never visible in that. We're always looked past. We're actually a little bit of an eyesore for the scenic 
view of our lives. And so he's sort of writing himself into this history and also writing himself backwards because he's kind of a scholar of history and goes back thousands of years and looks at the way this way of life has evolved or not. It's really, I recommend it. That sounds really interesting. You know, we usually do the recommend recommendations at the end of the show, but I thought today we'd, we'd get started with them. And I also, uh, I brought a little wine for us. It's uh, late in the afternoon and we have some very good podcast wine here, which was sent to us by one of our podcast advertisers, Wink. So I'll just uh, maybe open this if you guys would like to join me in a glass sure. while we sure. get the conversation started. So Sounds good. Uh, before I ask you guys what you thought of the book, I want to ask you a little bit about the question this book takes on, which is essentially, as, as I understood it, the problem of why many Americans, working class Americans, vote against their own interests, their own economic interests. And Huckshield frames this with reference to a book that got a lot of discussion over a decade ago, What's the Matter with Kansas, by, by Thomas Frank, which basically frames the same question. Why is Kansas, you know, one of the most conservative Republican states in the country, despite the fact that these policies have in many ways devastated this state and, and this place? It's In some ways, it's the, the problem of false consciousness, right? Which is Tom Frank's kind of more direct Marxist answer, which is, well, these people misunderstand their their own interests. They've been bamboozled by Republican politicians. Mm -hmm. But that's not really her answer. Well, she no, I thought her answer was, was a bit more complicated and a bit more interesting than that, um, in part because she does, to an extent, and Philip will um, disagree with me I'm here a little bit. I'm just going to pour you a little wine. But you, uh... I think she does, to an extent talk about some of the more irrational kind of psychological, emotional things going on. For instance, she talks about how committed a lot of these people are to the big businesses that are kind of crushing them because they are seeing them as vehicles for dignity. My grandfather, my father, they're sort of seeing instead of, you know, this horrible, polluting, corrupt company, they're seeing like, this is how our family kind of like pay, got our, bought our house. And they're seeing these companies as in you know giving them this kind of status and it's it's a much more kind of emotional and it's irrational and it's kind of cloudy and murky but she does try to examine those kind of irrational commitments and ideas Philip, what do you i mean does, does she portray these people as having had the wool pulled over their eyes or pulling the wool over their own eyes i mean why? more the latter yeah. um mm -hmm. uh she sets out she sort of says she was spurred by the frank's book to think about this problem um, but she doesn't buy entirely his argument um, that it's uh, an economic, a, a strictly economic uh, bamboozling by the, by the big powerful interests in the media, um, though she sees how they pro benefit from it. And, um, and then she sets out also the differences. I mean, Frank's is writing about his own state in Kansas, and, and she sets out very much, I am an echt liberal from Berkeley. I ha know nobody like this. Like she sets it up as if she's going into deepest Borneo or something, you know, <laughs> and we are going to go and see what these utterly incomprehensible people, um, I need to try to comprehend them, right? So she sets out as a sociologist, cultural anthropologist, and she keeps, and she presents it, and this is where I found it was problematic in some ways, but also maybe leads to what's insightful about it, um, as a question of empathy. Uh, like that, that she describes, she keeps using the same terms, this empathy wall between 
the these different view visions of America, the sort of liberal Berkeley liberal, which she keeps playing herself up as a Berkeley liberal, and these Tea Partiers in Louisiana, and she picks Louisiana specifically because of what she can, again her terminology, the keyhole issue. She's looking at this through, which is environmental uh, harm rather than simply economic harm. It's the the way they're working against their own interest is most directly in that they are killing themselves systematically on a very large scale. The families that she's meeting have horrible, horrible stories of the devastation of their communities and their ways of life by the petrochemical industry and other industries in the areas they've lived for a long time in uh, Louisiana. And they can't eat the fish that they fish and they can't eat the hunting that they hunt. Mm. And their kids are dying and their houses are falling into sinkholes and they're being evacuated from whole neighborhoods. Mm. And the corporations say, well, well, that's the sacrifice zone. Um, and, And literally write these whole things off and take no responsibility. And none of them trust government at all. Uh, which in Louisiana is perhaps not irrational. It's really one of the worst. Uh, Given how corrupt it is, yeah. how ineffective yeah. government is. Yeah. But but also they keep voting for these uh, politicians who they openly seem to see as ideologically aligned with them as anti-regulation, even though it's the regulation uh, the, is the only hope of, of ever getting some sort of control over what's literally killing them. My favorite thing about this book was, by the way, there's a diagram in the book of the poison fish, you know, where there's like a diagram of if you fish this polluted fish that's so toxic that it will probably harm you and give you cancer. Here's the way to cut it and like get the meat out of it so that you can eat it. Um, and Don't it, eat it. But if you're going to no, eat but it. But if you're going to eat it, here's how you do it. And the reason it was kind of interesting to me, it was a kind of um, amazing metaphor for this idea of like, why are you continuing to fish the fish? Like you're still committed to going to your own same place, fish out the fish. And then there's like a way to survive, even though it's like this insane, um, you know, Byzantine way to survive. So I feel like the commitment to eating the poison fish is kind of connected to this um, false consciousness that we're talking about or this or this kind of unwillingness to reject what seems so obviously to be the problem or kind of analyze it in that way. Although I got to say, having grown up in the Midwest uh, with uh, fish from the Great Lakes, which were very polluted in the 70s, I remember being told a version of the same thing without the diagram, which is you don't eat the skin and you don't eat the fat. And I think they would even say that uh, with fish from the Hudson River, which you're now considered okay to eat in small quantities. And ducks, Uh, um, because ducks have a very fatty. And so like all these duck hunters and bird hunters would end up you know, they, they, they hold a lot of the junk wow. in them. But, but when you pointed out the instructions on eating poison fish does seem a little bit a little bit insane. I mean, I guess I got hung up in a couple places in this book, and one of them was right with that uh, around that phrase, the empathy wall. Because I didn't see – I think there's a wall, but I don't see why it's around empathy. There's obviously a huge cultural gap between working class people who live in this toxic environment and, and work in factories in Louisiana bayous and a sociologist from Berkeley. And there's obviously a huge divergence in worldview and in politics. But I don't see why that necessarily is an empathy gap. And she makes a great show of saying, I'm going to empathize with you and try to see things your way. And I hope you can do the same for me. But I felt it was a bit... They kind of laugh at her about the do the same with you. I mean, they sort of say, uh, oh, you're from Berkeley, a communist, you know, or... 
okay, well, maybe I'll come see and you can introduce me to some naked hippies. I mean, they're not really uh, all but they that don't have any. They don't have any trouble empathizing with her in the sense of being a human being standing next to them in line or wants and to being, talk to them. They're and liking each other. Like, yeah. they all end up kind of liking each other. Well, I agree with you. I thought with the empathy, it was kind of beside the point. I mean, maybe we're all so cynical. We're like, empathy? Why would you even try for that? You know, but it's it also, it seems weirdly beside the point because... To me, the point or what was interesting or valuable about the book was not I don't really care about who empathizes with who, but it's more about seeing and understanding right. and like intellectually kind of figuring things out to me um, as more important than I mean, obviously, this person's a human and you're a human like those. That's nice. But she's from another generation. And I think maybe our generation's a bit more cynical about the possibilities of a certain kind of politics. Um, and I just don't, I don't think I really believe that there's going to be a deep empathy, like you say, between the sociologist from Berkeley who's just going to go back to her fancy life and how it is, or and they're going to go back to their lives. It's not, I don't really believe that there's much potential for that kind of empathy. But I do think understanding like what is going on is a kind of interesting and worthy endeavor. But what she doesn't try to do directly is persuade these people because the book is a, is about trying to understand how they see the world and make a case explain how they see the world uh but right it, but well, this is persuasion is what needs to happen i mean and maybe some act of empathy or show of empathy is necessary before you can engage in persuasion but i don't know if that's true i mean is is the is it that these that we lack empathy or simply that these worlds have grown so far apart that it's very very little communication taking place hence there's no persuasion taking place in either direction well one of the problems with the term empathy is it seems to me that it sidesteps the idea of politics and the idea that that i mean it, katie was saying you know they're consistently irrational and she's trying to understand why they make irrational choices but in fact she says that's the premise is she's not going to try and understand their mm. reason because she thinks they have none. So each chapter involves a long description of why it's nuts that they think what they think, and then a usually not as detailed uh, description of how they feel about it. It's mm. about feeling. So and then and now there's a lot of truth to the fact that politics is always about emotion and feelings. I think she she sort of sees that there's a cultural difference there. And she recognizes that, I mean, there is a really interesting question. Why are they willing to die for this? What is really underlying it? And she gets at it eventually, briefly, but moves on when she gets to race. Yeah. Um, that, you know, what they're all saying is, we are losing something. We have lost something. They have physically lost, like, their health, their communities, their homes, their hunting and fishing grounds, and their traditional way of life to petrochemical destruction. Right. Um, most of them have not gotten super rich. A few people have done all right uh, off this industry. And so they're, they're, the question is, what is it that they think they've lost? What is this nostalgia for? And obviously, it's for, you know, pre-1960s and pre-1860s white uh, dominion. But you're saying that. She doesn't say she that. She says that. She does get to it eventually. She has a little piece on race. And it's she also when she when she what she has is this idea of the great paradox, which is why do people do this stuff against their interests? And then she eventually keeps hinting at another one of her terms, the deep story. Mm. And the deep story is a kind of a mythical history that she puts together, a kind of uh, abstract, generalized profile of this person. And that is somebody who in a kind of, is in a sort of row of Sisyphean uh, people, like trying to get up over a mountain. Mm -hmm. In other words, the American dream, striving. They are striving. And throughout history until the 1950s, these are people who felt that they were moving forward and that the world was their right. 
as a possibility for them, an opportunity. And now they feel that they're slipping back, that the people behind them in line, and she's very clear about it, yeah, blacks, women. women. Um, But, you know, they're okay with white women compared to blacks Um, and, you know, anything brown, like even the brown pelican, which is being protected by the uh, (laughs) environmental laws, which is the state bird, are all somehow cutting in ahead of them. And and so they have this idea of makers and takers. We're the makers. They're the takers. They assume that, like, why should we support a government uh, program when the people who are supporting it are us and the people who are taking from it are other people who are undeserving? And it's very clear throughout this that none of this makes any sense. Except in terms of race, but and she doesn't. Put, but that's where that's where I want to stop you, Phil, because I think she you know she, she says there's this deep story, this narrative that they believe, which is that people are cutting ahead of mm. them in line. And yes, it's the brown people and the black people and and Obama. immigrants, Syrian immigrants. Yeah. There aren't any Syrian immigrants this place, no. right, right. but they think nationally this is what's happening. But she doesn't, and and you read that, and I read that, and you think that's crazy. They're not cutting ahead of you in line in any meaningful way. And, of course, it's a, it's a racist view in the world, but it does get at the loss of relative status these people mm-hmm. feel, which could also be explained in economic terms. But she doesn't really come out and say, this is a racist view of the world. She sort she of does. She says some of the people, she kind of goes out of her way to say they're not individually super racist. Like, they're sort of racist. They're racist. She kind of tries to defend the people, and I think that's why she veers away from a kind of stronger head-on tackling with that because she is kind of in a she doesn't want to come to that as a conclusion and i think she also you know when she brings up the point she's like uh, they also get angry because they think people are getting the aid they're getting handouts even though they themselves might need handouts and also and take them and, and take are getting them subsidized and actually in, get them, right. in many ways. But the, pe- but the imagination, they think we are taking care of our own people like they gave at the church. They gave a dollar at the church. And so they have this idea that there are these people, not only are there people ahead of them in line in what you describe. I thought that was kind of gimmicky, but vivid. It was. Um, but they're the people in the line and they're trying to like move forward and they're cutting them. But then there's also the fact that the, everybody's taking and there's not enough. And it's kind of irrational the way sibling rivalry is. It's like there's never enough cake. There's never enough love. Like you're always frantic that like somebody's taking, you know. And that mood, I think, is it's a little bigger than racism. I just felt like it was partly racism. And it's also about it is. It's about strangers. It's about like a guy not from your town, the guy who doesn't live next door to you. I mean, it's really xenophobia but, in a very profound way. See, I think it does come to racism more and that she hints at it uh, and she gets at it pretty explicitly because this is the this is the sort of big revelation of hers in the book is like I figured out that they all have this story of, you know, what the resentiment, you know, that great mm-hmm. old Creole Cajun word. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, but it's it is. It's resentment. I mean, they're basically filled with resentments, bitternesses, a sense of sort of uh failure and and sort of victimhood that they don't want to call victimhood. And and so then that you go back and it's like, where did they get defeated? They got defeated in 1860 and 1960. And not only does she come up with this story of the deep story, which is this sort of mythology of, fall, of of the line and falling behind in the line and getting cut in the line. But she tells that story over and over to her subjects. She takes, like, she basically says, like, this is the kind of collective profile I've come up with. And they're all like, bingo. Yeah. Mm. She's so, like, does this sound about right to you? They're like, yeah, yeah that sounds yeah. right. So they're, so, 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 so you're so saying she's ex- feeding it to them. So she's, well, when they hear it, they don't say it to her. 
But when she says it to them, they say, bingo. Then she goes to the chapter, which says, mentions the 1860s, the 1960s, the the South. And suddenly, the one thing that makes this whole thing stitch together, which is we had dominion. There was a world in which we were supposed to be on top. And somehow, that's no longer the case. So you have to you have to reposit a world in which all those other people just simply don't belong here. Right. And they have to be. So, so the, and then somebody says, well, I'm not a racist. I stopped using the word nigger in 1968. I never call anybody a nigger right. anymore. And right. she says, that's what they all say. Like, I'm not a racist. I don't use the word nigger. And she said, but but that is not how people like me consider racism. We consider racism uh, a, a attitude that believes in and supports and enforces a set of uh structures uh, in society that see the black or minority person as a sort of subject and inferior person on the social pecking order. Well, that's pretty much her saying. Yeah, but I think it's I think Katie <laughs> hit the point exactly. She's she's of course is is willing to to diagnose this as a racist worldview, but she doesn't want to say that people, people are individually racist. racist because she's climbing over her empathy, empathy wall and her empathy boots to make friends right. with them. And the whole point of the exercise right. is to not categorize them and write them off, but to try to understand them. But I think that's in doing that, she runs square into the problem that a lot of liberal America has been dealing with post-Charlottesville, yes. which is exactly the same problem. How do you say, well, you know, a very large percentage of the country is sympathizes with Donald Trump's view of Charlottesville. Mm. They don't think mm. the Confederate flag is a racist symbol. We don't want to say, both for tactical and human reasons, well, that 30% of the country or whatever it is, is irredeemably racist. Give yeah, up we also on just them. don't want to face that fact if it's true. We yeah, want to we avoid it. We want to like explain it in a much more palatable way. And we want to find a way to kind of do yeah. what she's saying, which is very sympathetically, oh, this is a racist view, but individuals aren't res- fully responsible for holding it, or I'm not going to come out and c- really call them out. But on they, their and also, Philip, but I this just is where say, she's I, unpersuasive because she's, and I think it gets to the thing you brought up at the very beginning, Jacob, when you said, she doesn't address the question of how would you persuade, persuade, confront, discuss. How would you change those minds, right? And unless you do that, you're either saying, and she keeps using this term, my friends in the Tea Party, my friends, my friends, my friends. She sounds like a politician, you yeah. know? like That's how John McCain talks. My friend, right. yeah. Right. You know, my friend is usually like the person you're about to like try to crush <laughs> and who's in your way, right? My friend is not my friend. He's the person who thinks everything opposite me. So the question is, she's saying, I want to understand them. But I also want this empathy and friendship approach to understanding them. Why? Why should I be empathetic and friendly towards a racist? That's this. That's a bit of a problem. We want to say I'm. We You're can right. have a common community, but we can also say we're in a common community where we have really different views. Actually, our views are incompatible. Her views are not compatible with their views. Yeah. She may wish them well, but she doesn't wish those things well. She is going to continue to fight for policies that would be the policies they're fighting against. And, and that's why I was saying, like, empathy got. is impossible here. It's not even desirable. Maybe it's just this Depends goal of mean. empathy is. I think it's it's um, stilting her investigation here, and it really is crippling her a little bit. But I just want to say one thing, which I think you're downplaying the resentment against women. That's both in this book and also within this problem. So. We, it's not just racism, but that thing about people getting ahead, which we kind of agree is like an interesting metaphor in this book, is if we look at this in, in conjunction with what I think is another a great work of reporting, um, Hannah Rosen's End of Men, um, where she really goes into different but 
kind of comparable investigations of people very different from her in a much more reporterly way, kind of less emotional. But she, when she, what she's uncovering about just this part of this is about men and dignity and men, white men feeling like they're losing their world. And I do think it's a bit about women. And she talks to some women too. She but talks to a lot of women. She That's talks why to some women, but I think that that part of it is there as well. Because when they talk, when totally. they're, you know, what they're losing is this status and they're, li- they're really looking at women because we- that's one of the biggest changes. Like we can say race has changed a lot since 1960, but the relation of women, like the way mothers and grandmothers are supposed to be, it's it's just it's so radically different in this really short amount of time. And they're responding to that as well. They are. I mean, she doesn't she she takes due note of that very well and maybe not much less than she notes racism. But by focusing on uh, two of the most successful people financially in the book uh, who grew up there and worked really hard are women who are hardcore, there's the hardcore Republican ideologue and there's the hardcore religious like basic fatal. I mean, the other thing is all these people are like deep religious fatalists. Mm -hmm. Many of them believe in the rapture. They sort of have this view, well, so what if everybody's dying, all my children are dying of cancer in this apocalyptic place, the apocalypse is coming and then we'll Mm -hmm. all be raptured up in a little bit of time and this won't be a problem anymore. And so there's a kind of peasant fatalism that she's confronting that she doesn't really, but with the, I think the women issue, the issue of women sort of as competitors in the line um, Mm -hmm. for this American dream or striving is huge. I don't think she fully develops that either because she's using these women characters who she doesn't differentiate their attitudes from the attitudes of the men. She doesn't say how, how is it different that these women who 30 years ago wouldn't be a single mom or a homeowner or a professional operative of the mm. Republican Party or whatever it is. The high powered, yeah. right? They're quite high powered. Some of these women, uh, they are, and and so you're, you know, she doesn't really confront the question of like, well, how come? How have you squared, you know, those, those sort of conflicting interests of entering this world and then defending it? I mean, what's what's a little tricky about that is that the women don't, for the most part, voice views that are that different from the men. That's what I mean. But you know, a, a sort of premise not quite at the level of her you know great chain of being where the where the white people are losing status but it was their lives were better before right i mean if you go back to this place 40 or 50 years ago they had not only had more status they had better incomes they had jobs that were in relative terms put them gave them a higher higher position in society and part of what's changed, obviously, is the role of women. But they don't regard that in the same way, including the women who have suffered f- from change generally or think they've suffered from change generally. They don't regard that as on the order of blacks becoming empowered and competitors for employment. They don't view it on the order of immigration and these other issues. And I mean, if you look at the history of the South, she mentions briefly Huey Long, whom she makes sound almost like a Kennedy Democrat. Um, <laughs> and, and, but, you know, he took, took the standard oil men and told them what to do and taxed the hell out of them and built a lot of institutions down there. And then she compress, compares that to Bobby Jindal, who basically took a billion dollar government uh, budget surplus and in eight years ran it down to a two billion dollar deficit by giving all the money back to the oil companies that were already there, you know, in mm. these tax cuts. But those southern voters were Democrats before. And they're now Republicans. And they've had and, – and it is somewhat irrational in terms of a lot of their other interests. It, it has not profited them. 
But what shifted was which party was where on the race issue. Mm. I mean, that honestly is it. Now, it is also on the women issue, but then she finds these women Republicans whom she doesn't fully explain, though she does say that in polls and in private conversations, the women are much quicker to say that they would lose more if government regulations and programs were cut as much as they Tea Party wants them to be than men. They're more reluctant to see all that go, and they're more sort of aware of the fact that they've somehow benefited from the social changes that they're also now digging their heels in against. So how do the Democrats go after these people? I mean, the Republicans have figured out a way to say, in a very tribal way, we are on your side. And the story about how they're on their side is totally implausible. We're on your side because we support lower taxes and deregulation and no more immigration. And that's going to restore the the past utopia. And of course, none of those things have any any effect on the macro factors that are making these people's lives worse. To the extent these policies make a difference, they make things in the Bobby Jindal way, they accelerate the decline. But what's the Democratic story? How do, how do the Democrats say, we're on your side and we have an answer that's better? Well, but the problem is with what Philip's saying is true, which is if a big central issue here is I'm, I hate people who are different from me, the Democrats are never going to win that game. You know, if that's the underlying emotional reality and Louisiana has a Democratic governor right now. I mean, they they true. they finally right, got rid of like, pro-life. Old, right. And crucial. old boy, right. like maybe a more kind of I mean, there there could be a Democratic person of that kind. But I think once you start again with the kind of identity politics that Democrats will feel like. I mean, they're the it's tricky to think about how the Democrat in, Democratic inclusiveness is not going to sound like I'm on the side of the people cutting in line. Well, they don't have to win all of them, first of all. I mean, mm-hmm. Democrats, at least nationally, don't have to win all of them. And locally, they have to. I mean, so one of the questions is, if you're in a place where the Republicans have skillfully or out of pure sincerity monopolized an issue that is separate from race and separate from economic exploitation, like right to life. And, and made that an issue which many people are unbending on, or guns, right? And the Democrats, as a national party, are just never going to go the other way on those uh, to, the, to the satisfaction of people for whom those are sort of single-issue mm. votes. And many people just don't care about the rest. They're like, you know, I, I'm not going to do those two things. Those are enough for me. And then, well, look, you've got a pro-life Democratic governor down in, in Louisiana now. Um, how would he fit in with the rest of the party? Pretty awkwardly, honestly. Um, are we, are Democrats, uh, you know, sort of uh, willing to do that? Are we prepared to sort of see a debate where that's going to get all split? I don't know. Well, in general, I would say Democrats have not been, you know, the other big example being Bob Casey and and. Pennsylvania, who, you know, came in for very rough treatment with the National Party and at the conventions and so on. And, you know, a pro-life Democrat, I'm a pro-choice Democrat, but the way that pro-life Democrats, and there aren't that many of them, but I favor tolerating them, partly because I don't think there's any great moment to their views. Nothing's going to shift. Exactly. But they're treated like pariahs. And, but that tolerate, being more tolerant and accepting of them in places like Louisiana in the South may be one of the keys to becoming competitive with the people described in this book, White Southerners. Another thing is, I just feel like one of the things she's getting at here is, that the content of what's being said is less important than something vaguer and more about personality. And Trump, we see it with Trump, 
is obviously projecting in his outsiderness, no matter what he does, no matter what he says, no matter how incompetent he is, he's projecting something as a personality that people are um, responding to. And I feel like with the Democrats, it's ultimately not going to be about platform. It's going to be about finding a person who is projecting. And I don't think, frankly, that person would ideally be a woman uh, or a black man. Um, I think it's about projecting a personality that people can respond to that they think is sending them signals of acceptance. I mean, let's not forget that Obama won two elections a lot more solidly than Trump won yeah, this one. Exactly. And, and he did it with some of the same voters. And um, Bill Clinton knew how to talk to mm-hmm. Southern white uh, uh, people uh, at working class um, without necessarily uh, giving them these Tea Party politics at all. Um, exactly. He, they're responding to something in him. So it's a cul- it's a kind of cultural language. It's an ability to mm. sort of say, I don't disdain you. I don't <laughs> my choices aren't simply those in which I completely reject your way of life is, you know, one of the things because what's really interesting is the fallback position is like like Fox News these days. Right. Some terrible thing comes out about Trump having done something monstrous. So immediately you'll see on Twitter that what's on Fox News a new Benghazi report, you know, yeah. another another turn of the Clinton tapes right. um, or emails, you know, and you sort of say, so they're just completely saying, you know, yeah, but uh, right. remember why you're with us. You're with us because we're against them. Right. But and, more against Hillary specifically. I think the very, anger against Hil- is a bit and Hillary and Obama, but it's not about Bill Clinton. I think Bill Clinton's a really interesting figure to bring up because I do feel like he did appeal to these voters. Well, I'm a sorry, more, he was a poor a white more. southerner exactly. him, himself, so there's there's no empathy wall for him to climb no, over. He does not climb, you know, and 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 culturally, he doesn't send any signals of being other or against them or not. It's plausible that he's upholding the interests of these. He people. knew how to talk to people about from 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 that world and not be seen simply as the Yale. Oxford neoliberal that, you know, he may his wife was seen as weirdly. Oh, um, people may have hated Obama, but, but Obama had a little bit of that quality of like being able to seem like he understood you or empathy. I mean, he had a little more of that quality. I mean, obviously, he had a bigger He's half a white boy from Kansas, let's exactly. remember. And I he mean, did very well in downstate Illinois, exactly. you know, when he was in the legislature. Sure. I mean, he does. He did. I think that's a, that's an important point. I mean, he is he has white grandparents from Kansas. He yeah. knew, he he had an idea how to talk to these people. He as knows well. how Very to much. talk to people. He yeah. knew how to. He talk knew how to, to talk. I mean, he knew how to, when you could hear his grandfather's voice, his mother's father's voice coming through him at times in a way that would have seemed very weird from another Chicago black politician who yeah. was, you know, let's say Jesse Jackson, who would just be like Jesse Jackson to them, you know? But we have to admit that Trump doesn't know how to talk to people. Like, the, mm. you know, going to the people in the shelter in Texas and saying, have a great time. Like, he just has no idea what you're supposed to say when you're supposed... I mean, he's really bad at talking to people. He's a good showman, though. He's an extraordinary entertainer He's of very sorts. good at entertaining and he's people. great at riling up the but emotions. But not necessarily on purpose or in the way he means to. Like, I think he mesmerizes and transfixes, but not always in... He's not always in control of it like how he's clinton was better as a poli- uh, at least more he knew what he was doing and how he was manipulating the world yeah those guys all won the popular vote i mean and that's not and it's not negligible so i think but one thing i'd like to say in terms of how will you reach mm. people maybe don't reach them by persuading them on these issues which nobody wants to be persuaded on no the, the whole thing is they don't want to be told how to behave any more than we do by them and, and, you know, people who have different views and and I don't want like this whole us and them thing. But, you know, like there's a there's a spectrum in the country. Right. And she goes for the extreme there and she sort of presents herself as the other extreme as a Berkeley liberal. And I'm sure that I'm somewhere 
along the way. I doubt I'm aligned with her, you know, on a lot of these things. But the fact is, what about healthcare? Suddenly you have an issue there that they say they don't want. But when it's about to be taken away, they do want it. Mm. And if you can deliver services and deliver benefits and results that the other party has sought to obstruct or take away, and people who are sick are suddenly finding that they're getting better care for a better deal. So they all hate Obamacare, but they sure like their ACA, Mm. right? That's pretty interesting. And in a time that's this polarized, to see the shift in opinion that we've seen in the last nine months uh, from against Obamacare to defending it, that's like move 10 points or something. That's a huge shift in 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 the kind of hard set divisions that we're looking at. That's the way you get through. You know, if you if we now see Elizabeth Warren, I think just on the day that we're recording this, uh, may have just come out saying she's going to support the same single payer sort of thing as, as Bernie Sanders. If that becomes the Democratic platform, that's the kind of place where people, as they get disgruntled with Trump, as they feel that Trump failed them, which I think it's clear that some of these voters will. And she makes it clear even in her book that although, they, I mean, there's a kind of problem here, which is she keeps talking about the Tea Party, but the Tea Party became the Republican Party under Trump. It sort of got subsumed into Trumpism. But some of those people didn't fully like him for various reasons, as church people, uh, things about his crudeness, suspicions that he was a big talker. If those people are peeled away and somebody with a populist message from the left that actually involves we're going to deliver things comes along, that might make a difference. Nobody felt that. Clearly, Hillary Clinton was good at communicating such things. So you're back to a New Deal politics. It's just transactional. Give them benefits that they want and won't want to lose, and they'll, they will ultimately vote their economic interests. There won't be anything the matter with Kansas anymore. Now, I'm not sure that there won't be anything the matter with it, but you sort of say, like, you know what, about the business of uh, this country being more diverse than uh, Cajuns? Um, yeah, that's just something you're going to have to live with. That's right. They're going to be I, people who, and, 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 and some of them are getting ahead of you because of merit, and some of them are getting ahead of you because of policies that are adjusting long-term injustices. And by the way, being a poor Southern, you know, what they call, these guys resent being called rednecks, but what they were called in Huey Long's time was a peckerwood. You know, they were not like at the peak of the of their power. They had a short period where oil was paying them in the 70s and 80s, maybe 60s, 70s and 80s. And unions were strong. These people have been totally gutted by the collapse of unions under their party. I just got to I came away with from this book with like a darker feeling. Maybe you have the same or maybe not. But I just had a darker view that the gap somehow there, the way they were talking about things felt so detached from these realities. Like, but you have he- when you would make that argument, but you have he- you get now you have really good healthcare. Yes, they want the healthcare, but it seemed so uh, that the fantasy of oneself plays into this so dramatically. You know, into your politics and your allegiances here, um, and all of these kind of feelings about being accepted or you know the home or whatever it is were so powerful and these mythologies were so powerful that I I wonder, I just didn't, it didn't give me a lot of hope in like a practical solution like that or in the possibility of progress in in that particular way. No, same. I mean, I think this book depicts a really deep irrationalism and it didn't leave me with a lot of hope for doing anything about it. I just think at some fundamental level, you've got to figure out how not to condescend to these people. You've got to treat them like equals. You've got to treat them with respect. And part of that 
is not indulging their irrationalism. When they're doing things that are against the national interest, when they're doing things that are against their own interest, you should you should argue not. With it. Yeah, I think you should argue with it. And that's, that's what she was holding back from doing in the book. And that's what I think I ultimately found frustrating is she wasn't engaged to engage respectfully with people. At some point, you say, I profoundly disagree with what you're saying, mm. if you do. And she mm. never wants to kind of come out and say that to Except her, that her new heap- friends in the Tea Party. Except she keeps on heaping on data that shows, you know, that they don't make any sense in her view. Right, the data is crushingly on the side of right. You she are doesn't irrational. necessarily give that to them. She's just right. more giving that to the reader. Right, but she, it's kind of her point of view is, I was bewildered that in the face of, and then you get sort of seven pages of just crushing data. They felt so what, and and uh, and you know, religion obviously is a big piece of this uh, in the way that they structure their sense of like we're not looking to politics, we're looking to the church. But there was a there was a fascinating piece just the other day. I can't remember where it was that was showing that um, there are twenty states here in the United States where the majority of people do not consider themselves like overtly religious. Where we have this idea that oh, everybody outside the big cities or the sort of you know super liberal uh, policy elite are deeply churchy. And that's not actually the case. But she found this particular, I mean, one of the things she also doesn't tell us is how much do these people represent? These people, not meaning the white working class, but this particular group of subjects represent something beyond this particular Lake Charles, Louisiana milieu that she's digging into so deeply. All right, answer me this last question. Is this a book you would recommend people to understand Trump's America, is it one of the books people should read if they want to get a grip on the present moment? And if you give me a good answer, I'll give you a little more wine. (laughs) I'll give you a little more wine anyway. You go first, Philip. I found it hard going, and I feel like things are moving so fast these days, and we're absorbing so much information that there wasn't a lot in there. And this is not taking away from what she did, because she put it, but at this point, probably a year after it went to press. Um, it didn't feel to me like there was a ton in there that gave me insight into Trump's America that I hadn't pretty well digested in the last six months. Katie? I, I don't necessarily know if I could recommend it. I was glad I read it when I read it. And I it made me look forward to other versions of this, people taking on this challenge and answering it. So what it really kind of left me with is not necessarily that people should read it, though I was glad I read it, but but a hunger for more books like this, maybe better books like this, maybe like Philip was suggesting more kind of honest and far like taking things deeper and analyzing things more that it made me want more books like this. Yeah. I mean, I'll answer it too. I think she's asking the right question and I like the creative way of going at it with this mix of sociology and journalism. Mm-hmm. The For some reason, the execution was a little bit irksome and unsatisfying, but it was the project is worth doing. And I think we should be looking for more books that are trying to do versions of this. I'm looking forward to Eliza Griswold's fracking. She's doing an investigation of an area that I think is going to be interesting. But I think there are books in the works. I'm sure there are many more. And we'll be back to talk about them on the Trumpcast Book Club. That's it for the September edition of the Trumpcast Book Club. And I'm ready to announce our October selection. We'll be back to talk about The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. If you have not read The Handmaid's Tale, you should read it. Watching the Hulu series is not enough, good as it was, and we're going to talk a little bit about that too. So please get a copy of The Handmaid's Tale and join us in a month. 
for the Trumpcast Book Club. Trumpcast was produced today by Jason DeLeon. Thanks again to Katie Royfi and Philip Gurevich of The New Yorker. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. <laughs>